Just a note, this episode of Left Behind contains graphic details of bombings that may be unsuitable for some audiences. Japanese bombers began dropping bombs on Clark Field at 12.35 p.m. on December 8, 1941. The airfield, about an hour and a half northwest of Manila in the Philippines, was the main U.S. landing strip on Luzon Island and housed the U.S.'s largest collection of aircraft in the Philippine Islands. That made it a prime target for Japanese bombers. 636 bombs fell on Clark Field, blowing apart hangars and the mess hall. Black smoke filled the air. Then the strafing came as 34 Japanese Zero fighters descended on the airfield, firing thousands of bullets into planes, people, and anything else in sight. Servicemen not already killed or wounded sprinted for the safety of trenches that they had begrudgingly dug in the weeks prior. Run! Run faster! Those in the trenches screamed to the sprinters. Some made it, others were cut in half or blown apart by shrapnel. But one man wasn't running for the trenches. No, this man ran to his Pontiac sedan and drove it straight into the Malay. He wasn't crazy. He was a man on a mission from God. Captain Ralph Brown, a 38-year-old professional pastor with dark eyes, a pointed face, and a small mustache above his endearing smile, jumped into his personal car, Old Ponty as he referred to it, and headed straight for the wounded men. He administered first aid when possible and loaded casualties into the sedan then drove them to the nearby Fort Stotzenberg Hospital. Arriving at the hospital, Brown turned the men over to the doctors taking cover. Once the car was empty, Brown jumped back behind the steering wheel. A dumbfounded doctor protested. Where are you going? To get more of the wounded men. At least stay under cover here until the attack stops. No, those men need help now. You're a crazy fool. I'm just going as things take me and God leads me. He headed back into the battlefield, not once, not twice, but at least five more times during the attack. Each time, he brought back a carload of wounded men. An hour after the first bombs dropped, the last zero left. Silence again descended on the airfield. Slowly, the black smoke cleared, revealing the wreckage. Twelve Flying Fortress bombers and some 50 pursuit planes were in ruins. Fifty-five servicemen lay dead and more than a hundred wounded on the field. Clark Field had been destroyed. But amazingly, perhaps even miraculously, Chaplain Brown had survived. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II prisoners of war, civilians, guerrillas, and other individuals captured by Japanese forces in the Philippines. This week I'm telling you about Chaplain Ralph Brown, who was the first chaplain in World War II to receive the Distinguished Service Medal, the second highest military honor a soldier can receive and he received it for the actions I described at the top of today's episode, which he did on day one of the war. But as you'll see, this awesome man of God would go on to do so much more over the next three years. Let's get started. Ralph Warren D. Brown was born in Washington State on October 13, 1903. His parents, Arthur and Ada Brown, were both from Oregon, and Ralph was the second of their three children. His father and grandfather were Methodist ministers, 
His grandfather was a circuit rider minister in Oregon in the late 1800s. He would drive cattle north as he did his ministry, and once the cows were fat, he'd drive them south while doing his ministry. Ralph grew up in Washington State and graduated from Vancouver High School in Vancouver, Washington in 1922. He then went on to graduate from the University of Washington in 1926. After graduation, he started working as a Methodist minister, which makes him a third-generation Methodist minister. Ralph married Margaret Irene Parkin in Seattle, Washington on March 9, 1926. Ralph's father, Arthur, officiated at the marriage. That night, Ralph was offered a little Methodist church in Redmond, Washington, where the couple spent their first year. Ralph's wife, Margaret, recalled that in 1927, the Redmond Church family gave us a purse of $100, and in our little Ford coupe, we toured back to the East Coast. Their destination was New Jersey, where Ralph attended Drew Theological Seminary. He worked as a minister while in school, and the family welcomed two children, a son and a daughter, in New Jersey before Ralph graduated in 1931. After graduation, the family moved back to Washington State, settling in Seattle's Highland Park neighborhood. It was the middle of the Great Depression, but Ralph found work as the minister. In April 1932, their third child was born, but the baby lived only one day. Their fourth child, a son, was born the next year. In 1935, Ralph moved his family to Gooding, Idaho to be a pastor there. Then, in June 1937, 33-year-old Pastor Ralph Brown felt a new kind of calling. He joined the U.S. Army as a chaplain with the rank of first lieutenant and was stationed at Fort McIntosh in Laredo, Texas. Ralph was the first chaplain at the base in 18 years, and Margaret recalled, It was in very bad condition among the men there, the highest venereal rate in the Army, so he was sent there to clean up the mess. So back then, venereal diseases, what we call STDs today, especially syphilis and gonorrhea, were a big problem in the military, and chaplains were the answer. There weren't any cures for the diseases at that time. Syphilis is a particularly nasty disease. It causes rashes and pustules in the initial phases, and in later years could lead to deformities and psychosis in those who have had it for a decade or more. In fact, in the 1940s, the military created a whole series of propaganda posters aimed at helping GIs, um, well, keep it in their pants. The posters warned the soldiers that women with VDs don't advertise their diseases to avoid, quote, good time girls. And while she might look clean, she could very well be loaded with disease. And you guessed it, loaded poster includes a gun and pretty girls. Use of these posters declined in the mid-1940s due to the decline of VD rates after the antibiotic penicillin was introduced in 1943. I've put a few examples of those VD posters on my website, if you're interested. The link is in the show description. Well, this has been a weird discussion for a story about a chaplain. Anyway, after two years in Texas, Chaplain Brown was shipped out of the U.S. On February 14, 1940, the chaplain, his wife, and their three children landed in Manila on board the ship USS Grant. Ralph took up his new post as the chaplain of Fort Stutzenberg and neighboring Clark Field, about 90 minutes northwest of Manila. While there, Lieutenant Brown was promoted to captain. The entire family remained at Fort Stutzenberg for about a year until Margaret and the children, ages 8, 11, and 13, were evacuated from the Philippines in anticipation of hostilities with Japan. Here's Margaret reflecting on her time at Clark Field. Clark Field, when I lived there, was 150 enlisted men and seven officers, and they could get one plane launched at a time. By the time we left, troops were pouring in. We came home in May of 1941, and they were building like mad. 
Margaret said goodbye to Ralph in Manila Harbor as she and the children boarded the USS Washington to come back to the United States with a thousand other women and children also leaving their fathers and husbands. We said goodbye to Ralph there in the stateroom in Manila, and he and a flyer followed us out as long as they could as the ship went around the other side of the island, and they dropped letters to us with rocks in them, so they would drop on the top deck, and we would pick them up and read our little love notes. Over the next six months, Margaret and Ralph had some radio contact. I had never had any responsibility for the car or anything, so when we talked to him by shortwave radio, I'd get advice on what to do with the car and the children. And then Japan attacked on December 8, 1941, changing everything. But we're going to start that story about 500 miles north of the Philippines. We'll start at a pre-dawn fogged-in airstrip on the southern shore of Formosa, which is present-day Taiwan. Early on the morning of December 8, 1941, Imperial Japanese Navy commanders were getting nervous. So, a Japanese commander swore, checking his watch and looking anxiously around at the fog that blanketed the airfield. More than 130 Japanese bombers and nearly 100 Zero fighter planes were fueled and loaded, ready for takeoff to Luzon Island in the Philippines, their pilots geared up and standing by. One of them was 25-year-old Sub-Lieutenant Sakai a descendant of samurai. In his five years as a fighter pilot, he had already become an ace. An ace is a pilot credited with shooting down five or more enemy aircraft during air combat. The young pilot shared his concerns as he surveyed the scene. The flight schedule is for Yoki, dawn, but the Kiri, fog, is too thick, and the timetable is so close. Another group of Japanese aircraft had attacked Pearl Harbor just a few hours earlier, that attack was part of a larger Japanese plan to attack American, United Kingdom, and other allied forces in the Philippines, Hong Kong, Wake Island, Guam, and more. A worried commander questioned his superior. What can we do? The pilots can't see to fly in this kitty. So, these are the best, most experienced pilots in the Japanese Army and Navy. Still, sir, they can't fly blind. The Americans will have received word of the attack at Pearl Harbor. The superior said, again checking his watch. This delay gives them time to send their planes southward and out of range, or mount a good defense, or send their bombers to destroy our grounded planes here. So, we must get in the air. As the sun came up, the heavy fog began clearing while rumors of approaching American bombers rolled in. Gas masks were distributed among frightened Japanese pilots. However, no American aircraft ever appeared. It took several hours, but the fog cleared entirely. Soon the order came. Take off now! Isogu! Isogu! Thus, at 10.15 a.m. on December 8, 1941, Sub-Lieutenant Sakai started his Zero Fighter, taxied down the runway, and joined the huge Japanese attack force rising over the South China Sea. Hello, NBC. This is Bert Silent speaking from Manila, and this time I've got a real scoop for you. Manila has just been bombed. In fact, right now it is being bombed. And without warning, Japanese bombers started bombing. Manila did indeed receive some bombs that first day of war, but Clark Field received the brunt of the December 8 attacks. At 1235, that huge wave of Japanese bombers from Formosa reached Clark Field and dropped their bomb payloads. The unexpecting American and Filipino servicemen headed for cover in foxholes. Chaplain Brown, however, headed towards the assault. An official military report would later state, 
While an intensive and sustained aerial bombardment and strafing attack were inflicting heavy casualties on personnel at his station, Chaplain Brown, under severe fire and without consideration of his own safety, drove in his personal automobile through the area being attacked, collecting wounded, administering first aid, and transporting casualties to the Fort Stotzenberg Hospital. In spite of enemy attacks recurring at short intervals, this officer made no fewer than six such trips, each with a full load of such casualties, in imminent danger from enemy bombardment and machine gunning. His actions beyond the reasonable demand of his duty saved many of the wounded from death or further mutilation. Chaplain Brown received the Distinguished Service Cross for his extraordinary heroism that day. The Distinguished Service Cross is the second highest award Army soldiers can receive. It is for those who display extraordinary heroism in combat, which is exactly what Brown did as he risked his life to save wounded men. He was the first World War II chaplain to receive the Distinguished Service Cross. Chaplain Brown wrote home telling his family that the bombings continued throughout December. Here's a voice actor reading Brown's words. We were bombed incessantly at Clark Field from the 8th of December, five or six raids a day. I was all over the place, visiting and encouraging our men. I refused to get down or hide until the planes were actually over me. <laughs> Some of the doctors got mad at me because I wouldn't hide with them every time the siren blew. And while this great man was saving lives, the generals in the Philippines and Washington, D.C. were arguing. How in the hell were you caught with your planes on the ground at Clark Field? A Washington, D.C. general thundered to General Lewis H. Bremerton, who was over the U.S. Army's Far East Air Force in the Philippines. Bremerton, in turn, approached General Douglas MacArthur. Sir, I need your help presenting this situation to the Army Air Force chief. Bremerton wanted MacArthur to explain to Washington, D.C. why MacArthur had delayed calling an airstrike on Japanese forces in Formosa on the morning of December 8th. Keep in mind this is hours after Pearl Harbor because of the international dateline. Bremerton had requested permission multiple times, beginning at 7.15 a.m. to launch an airstrike on Formosa. Each time he was told to await orders or that MacArthur was unavailable. Finally, at 10.15 a.m., MacArthur proved a 2 p.m. launch. But that would be too late as the Japanese were already in the air, attacked at 12.35, and by 1.30 p.m., Clark Field and the United States' largest air fleet in the Philippines were destroyed. Had MacArthur approved an earlier launch, who knows what would have happened. It's curious to me that at 10.15 a.m., MacArthur finally approved an afternoon launch. That was the same time that the Japanese fleet took off from Formosa. If one of Bremerton's earlier launch requests would have been approved, the attack forces would have probably met over the South China Sea. From what I understand, the U.S. B-17 Flying Fortress could fly at a much higher altitude than the Japanese bombers and Zero Pursuit planes. So if an air battle had ensued, I have to think the B-17s could have climbed in altitude and at least escaped damage from enemy planes. And perhaps we would have kept our large superior bomber fleet. Well, instead of helping Bremerton explain to Washington, D.C. why he was caught with his planes on the ground, a furious MacArthur told Bremerton to Get back to your post and fight this war, and don't worry about the damn Air Force Chief. World War II had officially begun, and in the first 12 hours, half of the American Air Force in the Philippines was destroyed, due, as General MacArthur radioed to Washington, to overwhelming superiority of enemy forces. At war's end, the Philippine-based generals blamed each other for the Clark Field disaster. 
One major general said that first day was a quote, disorganized business with no one at fault because no one was quote, geared for war. MacArthur stated he'd never heard about recommendations to attack Formosa. Now I try not to judge historical people too harshly. They couldn't see the future or indeed have the entire picture that we have the benefit of in hindsight. However, excuse me while I roll my eyes at MacArthur. First, the Pearl Harbor attack gave generals in the Philippines several hours warning of possible attacks. Second, what was the point of the huge military surge in the Philippines throughout 1941 if not gearing up for war? Now on the other hand, the United States had not officially declared war on Japan on that early December morning. Perhaps that could have tied MacArthur's hands and made it more difficult for him to order the airstrike. In 2011, author Walter Edmonds said that armed forces personnel in the Philippines, quote, almost without exception, failed to assess accurately the weight, speed, and efficiency of the Japanese Air Force, close quote. And that, in a nutshell, describes the prejudicial stance that would, in my humble opinion, become the U.S. military's Achilles heel. Now perhaps I take this too far, but I believe that underestimating the Japanese military power stemmed in part from racism. World War II era cartoons and propaganda often show Japanese people as subhuman, almost monkey-like. You can even see that caricature in popular songs like this one, calling the Japanese, quote, dirty, little, and yellow. <laughs> We're gonna have to slap the dirty little Jap And Uncle Sam's the guy who can do it We'll skin that streak of yellow from the sneaky little fella And he'll think the cyclone struck him when we're through it We'll take that double-crosser to the old woodshed We'll start right on his bottom and we'll go to his head When we get done with him, he'll wish that he was dead We've gotta slap a dirty little Jap this song was released in December 1941, so it's definitely a response to the attacks on Pearl Harbor, the Philippines, and other Pacific targets. Frustration towards an attacking enemy is natural. I remember the anti-Islam sentiments that many people had after the 9-11 attacks. Similar sentiments were happening on the Japanese side. They consider themselves a superior race, even the most superior of Asian races. There was racism on all sides of this war. And I wonder if the view of Japanese as small and inferior led to American military missteps with high costs. Namely, the U.S. losing the entire Philippine Islands, putting the Filipino citizens under a horrific occupation government, and sending some 90,000 Filipino and U.S. military personnel to POW camps within five months of the first attack on Clark Field. Now I'm not trying to be a social justice warrior or an apologist or to pridefully condemn anyone in history. I do want to better understand how and why certain things happened during World War II. And I think there are important lessons here in the damaging effects of racism if only we have the insight to learn from them. But I digress. Let's leave the generals to their blaming and finger pointing and get back to Chaplain Brown, who was in the trenches doing everything he could to help the men under his care. By the end of December 1941, Brown had retreated to Bataan Peninsula with all other U.S. forces on Luzon Island, and he became the senior chaplain of the Far East Air Force. He described his experiences on Bataan in a letter home. I covered all of Bataan, serving the beaches and fields and checking with my three chaplains on the front lines frequently. I covered 2,000 miles on Bataan roads in January. I would leave my tent Monday, get back Saturday. Held an average of two services a day and six on Sunday. 
Religious services were informal and held in frontline positions, in hospitals, and at messes since assembling large groups was dangerous on Bataan. Holy Week, I held 18 services and hundreds of men took part. We didn't realize how close we were to the end. Our men were in bad shape. Our medicine had given out. Our meals were cut to two a day on January 1st. Supplies started running low by the end of January. The middle of February, bread ran out. Meat of any kind was soon gone. We ate rice. By the middle of March, we were getting very small servings of that. On April 4th, the day before Easter, Brown came down with malaria. He spent four days in bed, sick and delirious with a high fever. On the morning of April 8th, a still sick Chaplain Brown went out to the toilet, was chased off by bombers, and the place I was half a minute before was blown to bits. I got in my foxhole. A 500-pound bomb hit 25 yards behind it, another detonated in a tree just over it. At 7.30 p.m., we got orders to evacuate our camp, that the U.S. front lines had disintegrated and the Japs were coming. I took two wounded officers and headed for hospital number two. My car had a hole in the gas tank. We went in an awful jam down a back trail because the tanks were on the main road. My car finally quit and I pushed it into the ditch. He and the wounded men got a ride further south in an infantry truck. On Thursday, April 9, 1942, the U.S. surrendered the Bataan Peninsula to Japanese forces. Confusion was wild. We heard that surrender would be at 6 a.m., but we were bombed and machine gunned mercilessly all that day. In the afternoon, we marched three kilometers under a white flag to the place of surrender. Chaplain Brown was now a prisoner of war, and then came the Bataan Death March. The 10th of April, we started the terrible march on foot. We went three days without food. Somehow, I got through. Only fighting hearts and men who had a will to live of the Bataan men are alive today. By God's help, and through the strength and power of your love, I was pulled through. More than half of the Air Corps men I served in Bataan are now dead. Only a few of them had died before the surrender. The march ended at Camp O'Donnell, which was as near to hell as man can concoct on Earth. We buried 1,500 men at O'Donnell in seven weeks. In June 1942, Brown and the other Bataan Death March survivors were transferred to Cabanatuan POW camps, where he served as senior chaplain. I had to write my sermons each week and submit them for Japanese approval. Occasionally, parts were red-penciled. My cemetery at Camp 3 was the best in the island, located on a little knoll with good drainage. I got the Japanese cooperation, and a glass bottle with full data on each body was buried at the head of each grave. No other cemeteries here have any permanent identification buried with the bodies. Most POWs who died at the Kabanatuan Camp Number 3 were buried in individual graves. Chaplain Brown oversaw placing of each man's information, military ID, name, age, hometown, date, and cause of death, and more, in a glass bottle that marked the grave. This became vitally important after the war, when U.S. personnel sought to locate the remains of as many American servicemen as possible. Remains from Cabanatuan were relocated to the Manila American Cemetery in Manila, or to a cemetery closer to the POW's home. Chaplain Brown suffered the diseases, hunger, and other trials of Cabanatuan with the rest of the POWs. He had amoebic dysentery in early 1943, but was able to get some medication, which was fairly remarkable because food and medication were in very limited supply. He cultivated a vegetable and flower garden at Camp Number 1 and used the flowers to decorate the camp chapel. He worked not only his work details, but often substituted for POWs who were too sick to go on their assigned work details. 
and he even heard once from his wife Margaret about one year and four months after he was captured and more than two years after they were separated when Margaret and the children left. I got a radio message from you in the early part of August 1943. It was a breath from heaven. I am feeling fine, honest, and looking forward confidently to the next few months. I know our prayers meet daily at the throne of grace. A little more than a year after receiving that message, and after two and a half years at Cabanatuan, Chaplain Brown was sent to Bilibid Prison in Manila in October 1944. He remained there for about two months. On the night of December 12, 1944, he hurriedly, and by candlelight, wrote a letter to his wife. We are leaving for Japan on a boat, we hear, at 8 in the morning. We have been in Bilibid for two months. Our planes have kept Manila Bay cleared, and we hoped our troops would take us here and we'd soon be home. But we have seen no American planes for 16 days now. We seem to be on our way. This means the duration of the war, if we make Japan. I hope and believe I will make it through. I've been through some bad spots in the last three years and am still alive. I can say I have always been true to you and to my God. God has been my help and strength through all these years. I believe he will still see me through. It would be the last letter Ralph wrote his family. On the morning of December 13, 1944, Brown and 1,620 other POWs were loaded into the below-deck holds of the Japanese ship Oroko Maru. They were being transported to work camps in Japan. Among the POWs was Major Frank Pizek, U.S. Marines, who is the subject of this podcast's first episode. Nicknamed Hellships, these Japanese transports were inhumanely cramped and crowded, with buckets for defecation, little food or water, and other unimaginable circumstances. While anchored in present-day Taiwan, the unmarked POW transport ship was bombed by American planes. Chaplain Brown survived that attack and received a Bronze Star for his actions. The medal citation reads, Brown ministered final rites to the dying and first aid to the wounded. After confinement in the hold for three days amidst the carnage wrought by the attacks, he took a leading part in cleaning the wreckage and bodies of the dead and, with characteristic assurance, maintained hope among the survivors. A fellow POW on that horrendous trip said of the chaplain, When we were being tortured to a slow, horrible death, when men were being driven stark mad and attacking their fellows, when there was no possible respite of any sort for the human mind, and when I could no longer see him, it was then that I heard his voice in his daily prayers, and that meant everything to me, even life itself. By the time they arrived in Japan, only 550 of the original 1,620 men remained alive. Brown was among them, but most reports say he collapsed on the docks as he got off the ship, never to wake again. A POW later wrote to Brown's father. He had given the last bit of physical strength he possessed for his fellow sufferers. He had left only enough strength to go down to the gangplank under his own power. He had arrived. He just faded away. His loving Heavenly Father took him in his arms and kissed him with the crown of life. Ralph distinguished himself on the hell ship by the assistance he rendered to the wounded, sick, and dying. If the strength he expended here could have been conserved, he might have lived. But he answered duty's call, regardless of the consequences. Chaplain Brown was 41 years old. His wife Margaret later recalled that, 
A Buddhist priest took those men and cremated them, labeled the ashes, and then when the war was over, I was notified that the government had them. The priest had turned them over to them. Ralph had always said he would like to be buried in Arlington, so that is why he is back there. Ralph Brown's ashes were laid to rest in Arlington National Cemetery on June 28, 1949, about four years after his death. In December 1946, about two years after Ralph's death, Margaret and his children received Chaplain Brown's various military awards. These were the Distinguished Service Cross, the Legion of Merit, which is given for exceptional conduct in performance of outstanding services and achievements, the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, an award given to those wounded or killed while serving, a Presidential Unit Citation with two clusters, the American Defense Medal, the Victory Medal, the Asiatic Pacific Medal, the Philippine Liberation Medal. Chaplain Brown's wife, Margaret, never remarried as far as I can find records. She passed away in 1992 in Seattle, Washington, age 88. Their only daughter spent much of her adult life in Florida, where she passed away in 2012 at age 82. Their youngest son passed away in 2019, aged 86, and their oldest soon followed him. Ralph Brown's story of selfless sacrifice is remembered and passed down to his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and beyond. The chaplain's heroic self-sacrificing actions on that first day at Clarkfield and throughout his captivity were quietly brave. In contrast, some early World War II actions associated with Clarkfield were shouted loudly around America, becoming the things of legends. More on that next week. This is Left Behind. for listening. If you want to see pictures of Chaplain Brown and other parts of his story, visit this episode's webpage. The link is in the show description. You'll also find sources about Brown's life. If you're interested in learning more about the attack on Clark Field, I recommend the book The Fall of the Philippines by Lewis Morton. In my show, I give an overview of the attack on Clark Field, but there are so many more details and simultaneous attacks that were happening on December 8, 1941. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review. Reviews help others find this podcast so we can help continue sharing these amazing stories. And I'll be back next week with the first massively public hero of World War II.